With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Here we go! Another episode of Fish Bites coming at you on the Fish Stripes podcast. It's Eli Sussman back again, managing editor at Fish Stripes, full coverage of the Miami Marlins and all related topics on fishstripes.com and our social media accounts at Fish Stripes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Uh, this week on Fish Bites, we will be continuing Ultimate Marlins Depth Charts. That's a series of position-by-position analysis of the existing talent in the Marlins organization. So that includes the current major leaguers, all standout prospects at various stages of their development, plus my, quote, curiosities, who provide some sort of unique background or skill set that don't fit neatly into one of these other conventional categories, but are definitely worth monitoring as we head towards 2020. Uh, The previous episode was the first in this depth chart series. We focused on the right-handed pitchers, the obvious ones in the major league rotation like Sandy Alcantara, Pablo Lopez, uh, the relievers at the major league level as well, but we went all the way through the organization to the top prospects from Sixto Sanchez and George Guzman to ones that just signed out of this most recent 2019 draft class. So we broke it all the way down. If you missed that one, I really encourage you to go back and check it out on our podcast feed or, again, on the website. All these episodes are posted there, and we're going to keep these organized as we go to the different positions as this part of the this slow part of the offseason goes on. We're taking stock of all the talent at these spots so that we could better understand where the Marlins go from here 
and how you move forward from a 57-win team to one that's supposed to be much more competitive this next season and then certainly more the couple years after that. But first, it must be mentioned that I am recording this in the midst of the MLB postseason. It is the sixth Tenth consecutive year that the Marlins are not involved directly as one of the postseason teams, but as we've noted all month long, every single team that qualified for the 2019 postseason had some sort of Marlins connection to it. All ten teams that made it into October as a division winner or a wild card, and that is holds true for the two teams that have made it all the way through to the World Series. That World Series starts on Tuesday in Houston. The Astros facing off against the Washington Nationals. The Astros just two years ago won their first World Series in franchise history with some contributions from Jake Marisnik. Once a big-time outfield prospect in the Marlins organization and originally from the Blue Jays organization, he's now been with the Astros a handful of years and he's had a steady role as their fourth outfielder, valuable as a base runner, as a defensive replacement, um, not so much as a hitter. But nonetheless, he's been involved throughout this postseason run and expect to see him in the Fall Classic as well. He's looking for his second World Series ring in three years. On the other side with the Nationals, maybe you feel a little bit more animosity to them being a division rival of the Marlins, but they do have some stronger ties than the Astros do. That begins with Anibal Sanchez in their rotation, the very back end of their starting rotation. But he's already had his big shining moment during this postseason. During the National League Championship Series, he had a masterpiece that helped them sweep the series. That was He pitched Game 3 of the series and had a no-hitter going pretty deep along in that. And very quietly, if you look at his career postseason resume, it's extremely impressive, although he's never been involved with a World Series champ until perhaps this year. Uh, he may not be pitching the most significant innings coming up in this World Series, considering that the Nationals had more than a week off to prepare for this. He he may be limited more so to mop-up duty or emergencies, but still involved nonetheless, and he couldn't happen to a better guy, so he, very easy to root for. Also on their active roster, someone that you certainly don't have any fond feelings to as a Marlins fan is Fernando Rodney, 42 years young, I believe the oldest active player in the major leagues right now, and who knows whether he comes back for 2020. This could be some of the final innings he pitches at the major league level. Been bouncing around a lot ever since that brief stint with the Marlins in 2016. And now with the Nationals in their bullpen. He's only pitched a couple times in this entire postseason run. But thus far, he's been able to squeak out of those situations without allowing a run. Contributing in his own way. If things go according to plan for the Nationals, though, he, he won't be all that prominently involved in this World Series, you would think. Also off the field, advising their front office is Trader Jack McKeon, even older than Rodney, probably about twice as old as Rodney at this point. I believe this is his first year with a job in the Nats organization. You'll remember that all the way up until the Marlins ownership change a couple years ago, he still had a role with the Marlins themselves, and he provided that nice link to the 2003 World Series champs. So it was disappointing that 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 had to end, and whether or not that did have to end, that's going to be up for debate whether they wanted to turn a new leaf or not in those advisory roles. Either way, he's an easy guy to root for, so it's good to see that Another team values his input, and I guess he's had the magic touch because this is the first time in Nationals history 
that they've been able to make it to the World Series. The main reason why I bring up the postseason, actually, is to focus on two guys that are no longer alive in the championship hunt this year. They were just eliminated this past week in the championship series. On the American League side, the Astros had to go through the mighty New York Yankees, and it took six hard-fought games for them to prevail. So eliminated in the process was Giancarlo Stanton, the former NL MVP, one of the most productive players in Marlins franchise history, an author of perhaps the single most valuable season by a Marlins player. On the National League side, the Nationals swept through the St. Louis Cardinals. And in the middle of their lineup, another very popular outfielder, Marcel Ozuna, traded right around the same time that Stanton was and relied very heavily upon by the Cardinals team in order to get to this point. Uh, Now that the season is over for those two guys, and for Ozuna now coming up on being a free agent for the first time in his career, I thought it was the perfect time to check in on how those trades have played out. No doubt two of the most important trades in Marlins history, and that whole exodus of star players during that 17-2018 offseason was, was critical to resetting this team and changing the entire identity that the team had. These guys were right in the middle of it. They were sent to teams that had aspirations of being contenders. I've already mentioned it. Neither of those teams have made it to the World Series in the two years with those guys. The Marlins overall got seven players in return of those two trades with the hopes of those players plugging a lot of holes for the Marlins for the foreseeable future. In 2018 and 2019, we saw some glimpses from players involved in those trades, and it's too early still to pass final grades on how those deals went down. I know that people want to jump to those conclusions, but until we see what the Marlins actually get from these guys as part of their core moving forward and whether that actually leads to anything substantial for the team as a whole, it still seems a little bit premature. Uh, Nonetheless, we've already gotten a lot of information about what the outgoing stars have done for their new teams and whether it was really worth that price of sacrifice in order to go all in during this part of their competitive window. Taking you back to December 2017 at the MLB Winter Meetings, the Yankees announced they had acquired Giancarlo Stanton, agreeing to pay $265 million of the $295 million that was still remaining on his then-record extension. They saw him as a critical piece of the middle of their lineup. A lot was made about how him and Aaron Judge were the two most prominent sluggers in all of baseball, and guys that would resemble each other, had similar profiles, would offer each other protection in the lineup, and how well that would work for a, Mar- for a Yankees team that was coming off already making it to the ALCS, and how this was going to make the team even stronger. Stanton, for his part, seemed very excited about the change in scenery, and the Marlins had it coming to them. Um, I mean, first of all, it was Jeffrey Loria that gave Stanton that massive extension without like feasibly understanding how exactly they were going to pay him and still build a good team around him. That was no longer his problem when he sold the team to Bruce Sherman, Derek Jeter, and company. But as soon as those new owners took over, they uh, didn't shy away from making it clear that they wanted to trade Stanton. For as much as he meant to the Marlins organization, he was standing in the way of the team being profitable and competitive just from the fact that he agreed to that big extension that he signed. So the fact that they were very transparent about wanting to trade him, 
that had Stanton feeling a certain type of way, and he was very clear with communicating that publicly. So he goes to the Yankees, and from the very beginning of his season, he gets off to a slow start, which is not unusual for Stanton if you had known his history with the Marlins earlier in the decade, getting off to slow starts, generally being a streaky player. He caught fire towards the middle of the year. He also suffered a hamstring injury towards the middle of the year. This is 2018, his first year with the new team. And overall, he was still a very good player. He didn't get any MVP votes. I don't even think he was an all-star that year, but he was still a very productive player. He led the Yankees in a variety of counting stats. The Yankees went on to win 100 games. They went to the postseason as a wild card, and they got eliminated in the division series to the eventual World Series champion, Red Sox, where Stanton did not look all that great in his first postseason series, although he did hit a big home run, I believe, in the wildcard game that year. Then, coming into 2019, his second year with the new team, he wanted to prove some haters wrong, that now that he was more comfortable with the organization, he would unleash the full complement of his skills, that he would be willing to play more games defensively in the left field rather than as a designated hitter, that he could cut down on the strikeouts after whiffing more than 200 times the previous year, and that he could hit it out of the ballpark as much as anybody and start to rival his MVP form rather than his 2018 form. Unfortunately, he didn't get the chance to prove much of anything. Just a few games into the regular season, suffered a biceps injury that kept him out for more than a month after returning from that, very promptly after he suffered a knee sprain that took away the middle of his season all the way deep into September, I believe he had some sort of setback along the way with that knee where he played nine games in September, only nine games in all the months prior to September. The Yankees uh, cruised pretty clear, pretty easily to an American League East Division title without Stanton. He came back when that was already wrapped up but he looked good enough down the stretch that they plugged him into the postseason lineup. He hit into some tough luck during the postseason, but also had a big home run in the game one of the ALCS that allowed the Yankees to secure that win. That put them in a good position to take that series from the Astros. But in the process of that first game of the series, he also suffered a strained quad. Another injury, one that typically would sideline you for a number of weeks that if you've ever had a strained quad, you can't really play baseball during it because it affects you in all facets of the game, especially running, where it pretty much takes away your ability to run. Uh, But they did put him in the lineup as a designated hitter in Game 5 after a few days off. Uh, There's been some discussion about how exactly that was played, whether they should have put him in when he was far from 100%, or on the flip side, whether he should have missed any games at all because these were elimination games or close to it, the most important games of the year. Uh, The reality is that he asked him to the lineup, they put him in the lineup, uh, but then after a a somewhat ugly performance during that game, even in a a Yankees win, uh, he did not come back out there for game six, and they went down in that ultimate game without him playing any role at all, so that puts a pretty bad taste in his mouth going into the offseason. Overall, the Yankees have been a great team these past two years when he's been in the lineup, they win at a 625 winning percentage rate, 110 and 66. In games that he doesn't play during the regular season these past two years, almost identical, a 628 winning percentage, 93 and 55. So that tells you that, well, it's an organization with great depth. And even though Stanton is the highest paid player on a very high payroll team, 
he is not essential to what they do. Although he's certainly had his positive impact during that 2018 season, uh, he hasn't really moved the needle per se for them. And that was the whole idea of acquiring them. Uh, He's about to turn 30 years old, still with eight guaranteed years left on his contract at a time at if you pay attention to aging curves of other big sluggers, it's not all that pretty once you get past the age of 30. So although he is an exceptionally well-toned athlete with a very unique skill set, it's a big question about uh, whether he'll ever get back to that MVP form that he had with the Marlins. On the flip side, in the Stanton trade going down to Miami, there were three players involved. Right-hander George Guzman was the biggest asset at that time. He was one of the most highly regarded Yankee pitchers in that farm system. Uh, amazing fastball velocity, a nice breaking ball, and he was coming off a productive season. He had his, he took his lumps at high A Jupiter in 2018. The Marlins gave him a pretty aggressive assignment, and he simply couldn't throw enough strikes. And even when he got ahead in the count, he couldn't finish off batters. So that was somewhat of a concerning year. Fortunately, he bounced back from that here in 2019, promoted to Double A Jacksonville. And he led all Marlins prospects in innings pitched. We talked about him in much more detail on the previous episode, so I'm not going to rehash all that. Just know that he's on the 40-man roster now. Heading into his age 24 season, he seems almost assured of being a call-up to the major leagues. The secondary prospect in that deal was shortstop Jose Devers, who was just, just turned 18 years old at the time of that trade. It was right around his 18th birthday, and he hadn't been able to show much of anything playing at rookie-level ball, but the Marlins put him at the full-season level in 2018, and he immediately saw his stock surge quite a bit, showed a great defensive skill set, as well as contact ability, and he earned a promotion late in the year all the way to high Jupiter, where he was one of the youngest players in the entire Florida State League. That rise has continued somewhat here in 2019, where with Jupiter, he got off to a sizzling start at the plate and in the field, one of the better players on the team at age 19, but he suffered an injury pretty early on that took him out for uh, a few weeks, and then when he came back from that, he suffered a second injury, a forearm strain that wiped out most of his summer, which is why he's still playing baseball right now in the Arizona Fall League to make up for some of his mixed at-bats. Um, not hitting quite as well in the fall league as we speak, a shade over 200, and he's playing some second base on a roster that is clogged up with shortstops, but he does have all the skills that you look for in a future major league shortstop, so there's a lot of optimism about that, the question being whether he can ever hit for any sort of power, the polar opposite of Stanton, he hasn't hit a single ball over the fence since coming into the Marlins organization. And thirdly, included to balance out the salaries in this deal somewhat, second baseman Starlin Castro. He had been with the Yankees the past couple years, and now he was somewhat expendable to them because of Glaber Torres coming up through their system. Over these past two years, it does appear the Yankees chose right for them in that situation where Glaber Torres has exceeded Castro's production. But Castro has been extremely durable in 2018 and 2019 for the Marlins. 2018 was a pretty consistent year for him, where he was approximately a league average hitter, and his defense surprised a little bit, where he's surprisingly solid as a second baseman, more or less an average everyday player, and that's a pretty good value at that year was less than $11 million in salary, 
so a little bit more expensive in 2019, and got off to just a miserable start at the plate. It was, if it was a bigger market team, you would have had all the analysts in baseball like scratching their heads about Castro because he was one of the least valuable players in baseball in March, April, May, June. He was hitting way too many ground balls. He couldn't, he couldn't get the ball in the air against anybody. Wasn't running all that well. His defense had taken what seemed to be a half step back. And he flipped a switch right in the middle of the year, right before the All-Star break. It wasn't enough to like redeem any trade value. The Marlins were hoping to flip him coming up on in the midst of the last guaranteed year of his contract, and they weren't able to do that. But instead, he just stayed red hot the last three months of the year. He was the most valuable Marlins hitter in those three months, July, August, September. An OPS uh, right around 900 during that time. The defense was shored up, and he got pushed over to third base with the promotion of Isan Diaz. Castro handled that in stride. What you have to credit him for is he was a good presence in the clubhouse, and that wasn't necessarily assured based on his history dating back to the days with the Chicago Cubs. So that was somewhat of a redeeming quality to him, that he was a veteran in this clubhouse when the Marlins did not have very many veterans that were also producing on the field. That being said, the ultimate gauge of how this trade worked out for the Marlins is going to be if they get anything at all from Guzman endeavors at the major league level. Both those guys, as we speak, are firmly within the Marlins' top 30 prospects. Devers right around 12 to 15, Guzman right around 15 to 20, depending on what list you value and what qualities you value in a developing player. Uh, but, but both of them should be on the way to the major leagues. The question is what they're going to do once they get there. And for the Yankees, they're a team better equipped than anybody else to live with an albatross contract. Uh, and unfortunately, that's probably what Stanton's is going to become eventually. The question is whether they can seize on their competitive window over these next two years and get over that hump, get to the World Series, win a World Series. Uh, Stanton, at the very least, in the American League, he's going to be a dangerous bat in your lineup when he's healthy. This was somewhat of an anomaly year for him in that he had these three separate injuries all impact him uh, at different times and for significantly impairing his abilities. But in all honesty, we know that for much of his career, he has been able to fight through those injuries and still be a valuable member of the team. So that's what I expect moving forward. All hope is not lost, although the outlook on this trade, I'd have to admit, is not super bright for either organization. There's not a whole lot to celebrate at this particular moment, yet some reasons to be optimistic about what they're going to get out of these players these next few years. So now to analyze the Marcelo Zuna situation. Traded just a few days after Stanton was in late 2017 to the Cardinals. He had two years of team control remaining, not a contract, but arbitration eligible those last two years. Part of a five-player deal with the Cardinals these past two years. Slightly better than a league average hitter, but 8% better if you go by weighted runs created plus. 262 batting average, 327 on base percentage, 451 slugging. 52 home runs, 177 RBI combined between the two years. Adding up the whole package, valued at 5.4 fan graphs wins above replacement. And that was right in the middle of the pack if you look at all qualified outfielders over the last two seasons. 48 qualified outfielders, 25th in wins above replacement, according to fan graphs. So nothing special. He was better than 
you know, the average major league player, but in terms of ones that were actually trusted with everyday jobs, ones who were durable, and although Ozuna suffered a couple injuries, he was durable overall, just nothing special, which is somewhat of a letdown considering the year that he was coming off of in 2017. It was a breakout career year for him. He wasn't an MVP candidate that year considering what Stanton had done at the exact same time. Not that far behind, though. Just one of the league's most effective offensive players, and that was his first year transitioning to left field, which is where he's been with the Cardinals. And if you're wondering why exactly his total value seems so pedestrian for someone we know is so talented, it has to do somewhat with the defense as well, where very early in his Cardinals career, the throwing arm just went kaput. (laughs) He's had some chronic shoulder issues that have sapped his arm strength. Uh, He's still been able to do some effective things defensively, but he has his occasional awkward play, even with Miami, and a couple viral ones now with the Cardinals, where he's misjudged fly balls that he should have been able to catch, but also the simple loss of arm strength, which was a big asset to him early in his career. That matters. That really adds up over time, even though he's still able to move around pretty well, still in his late 20s, so not exactly at a time where you'd expect him to slow down in in that aspect of the game. But losing the arm strength because of the shoulder issues has has put a big cloud over his future, heading into free agency. The Cardinals, when he was playing games for them over the past two years, they were good. A 540 winning percentage, 115-128. When he did miss time with some nagging injuries, uh, it's a much smaller sample, so don't overreact, but the Cardinals, when they were Ozuna-less, had a 630 winning percentage, 29 wins, 17 losses in those 46 games without him, which, like the Yankees, just speaks to the depth that the Cardinals had. They thought Ozuna would move the needle for them. They had missed the playoffs the couple years before acquiring him, and although they missed it again in 2018, they were able to surge enough late this year to get in and win a series. All, all in all, an interesting year for the Cardinals, and I don't think one that they regret all that much, but they gave up a lot of quantity in this deal at the time. It was perceived to be quantity over quality without any slam dunk major league difference makers that were being traded from their farm system. Uh, But as it turns out, they just have a lot of outfield depth in their organization, guys that bring different skill sets. And although Ozuna was helpful, I I think they're always going to be questioning whether or not he made their team dramatically better over these past two years. On the other side of the equation, the headliner at the time, and he's, he's, he's hoping to prove himself to be the most valuable piece involved, was Sandy Alcantara. In his two years with the Marlins, we've already mentioned this in the previous episode, a 3.81 ERA, 4.58 fielder independent pitching, uh, a 2.5 Fangraphs wins above replacement in 231 total innings pitched over these last two years with him hitting his stride, especially in this past August and September. The biggest lingering question from this trade is whether Sandy will be the most valuable piece involved or will be Zach Gallen, who's now no longer a Marlin. When he was a Marlin in just seven starts called up this in the middle of 2019, he had a 272 ERA, a 357 fielder independent pitching, and was worth nearly one win above replacement in just seven starts. But then at the trade deadline, they flip him to Arizona to get shortstop Jazz Chisholm, who has even more upside than Gallon, 
but obviously no major league production to speak of and a more risky profile. Meanwhile, Ga- meanwhile, Gatlin went over to Arizona and he basically continued doing what he had done with the Marlins. Not somebody that you would anticipate being a true top of the rotation pitcher, but a very safe bet because he has several different weapons that he trusts a lot. With Sandy, it's mostly about the sinker. With Gallon, you like the fastball and the changeup and the breaking ball. There's, there's a lot of ways that he can beat you, and they're almost exactly the same age, which means you're not really grading anything on a curve at this point. It's basically just looking at the results at the major league level. That's going to be a fascinating story to follow moving forward. In the original trade we go back to, the two other pieces involved were outfielder Magnaris Sierra, who has had a cup of coffee with the Marlins each of the past two years, still just 22 years old, so it'll be age 23 season in 2020. He's had a couple hamstring issues the past two years, which is concerning for someone that relies so much on his running ability. The, the, the nice sign was that he was hitting more effectively during his brief time up in the majors this year than he had been in 2018, using all fields. And as a base runner, he was a lot smarter on the bases. For a guy with that kind of ability, the understanding the situations when to use it is very important i don't see a scenario where he's ever an everyday player in the majors i just the hitting ability isn't there the the power isn't there and there's no real reason to project that it ever will be he's going to be all about speed and defense and hitting right-handed pitching so he's going to be out of minor league options going into 2020 it is yeah very likely that he cracks the opening day roster somehow and I'm interested to see how he's used. A nice complimentary player, but nobody that on his own is necessarily going to change the Marlins' um, effectiveness all that much on his own. And the fourth piece we're going to revisit later, this being the left-handed pitching depth breakdown, is Daniel Castano, who has spent a lot of this year at AA Jacksonville. Uh, clearly, the... Uh, biggest wild card of all four of the pieces that the Marlins got in return. The one who hasn't seen any major league time and wouldn't necessarily bet on being an impact player in the majors. It's just nice to see that there's still something working with him and that he's coming off this kind of productive year and that maybe there's something repeatable in there that Marlins can maximize moving forward. In review, Ozuna gave the Marlins some great times. He was inconsistent somewhat as a hitter during his Marlins years, but the peaks were beautiful and the kind of peaks that we haven't seen the past couple of years from anybody on the team. There's obviously some sentimental feelings about him and a desire to pursue him in free agency this coming year. We'll see how that goes. It depends whether or not he gets a qualifying offer. That would certainly change the conversation. Uh, regardless of a, a reunion, the Marlins par- parted with him at pretty much the perfect time had they held on any longer I feel that the regression of his bat would have even reduced his trade value even more. So they really maximized it at the time, even though they didn't necessarily need to part with him. He was paid, what, just over $21 million by the Cardinals these past two years, a kind of salary that was similar to Starlin Castro. It's a manageable salary for any team, but the Marlins understood the bigger picture and how they needed guys that were under control for the long haul. That's exactly what they got. The question is going to be how Sandy progresses from here and whether he can continue being a reliable starting pitcher or if he could take a step beyond that and be a perennial all-star pitching near the top of the rotation. 
just assuming that an Ozuna reunion ain't happening here, the Marlins should still be content with how they executed this trade and what they're doing to develop the players that they received in return. It's time to continue our series of ultimate Marlins depth charts, position by position. We're going to look at the present, the near future, the distant future, and the periphery of all the talent within the Marlins organization, making projections about how exactly they fit in with this organization and how it affects how the Marlins need to go out and improve their organization this offseason and beyond. We did the right-handed pitchers in the last episode, so this is just the left-handed pitchers. Left-handed pitchers. I emphasize that because if there is a significant pitcher that the Marlins have that is not mentioned in this next segment, it's because he probably doesn't throw with his left hand. He's a right-handed pitcher. Like I said, go back to the previous episode for all the righties. Uh, The lefties are a smaller percentage of the population, as you might imagine, just like in the general population where vast majority right-handed. Even in baseball, it's about, what, a 70-30 split, righties and lefties. So this segment is going to be shorter than the right-handers in the previous episode, and that's why we were able to fit in some different topics in this episode, aside from the usual analysis. We're going to break it into the four categories, the MLB active players who are on the roster right now, the 2020 ETAs, players that will be receiving their first call-up next year in all likelihood if they stay healthy and consistent, the next waves of talents beyond that, not assured a 2020 call-up, but perhaps at the very end of the year or in the coming years, 2021 and beyond, then the miscellaneous guys who don't fit in one of those above categories all that neatly. Alphabetical order for the MLB active pitchers, and that means the first one up is Wei Yin Chen. A 6.59 earned run average, 5.23 fielder independent pitching, and 69 in a third innings pitched last year. If you've been a steady member of the Fish Tripes audience, I appreciate that, and that means you already know my feelings about Chen. I see no reason why he should pitch another regular season game for the Marlins under contract for one more guaranteed year in 2020 for $22 million. As things presently stand, Chen is making close to half of the 2020 projected Marlins payroll. Of course, they'll need to make some additions in free agency or acquiring veterans via trade. I hope they do that, and they should not let Chen get in the way of that. He was a mediocre starter for most of his run with the Marlins. They tried putting him in the bullpen this past season. They didn't didn't do him any favors by using him sparingly in very low-leverage situations, very irregular workload especially late in the year. He sometimes went multiple weeks between appearances. So uh, I think it's on all sides. It just is not a great arrangement right now moving forward. He should get an opportunity to be a free agent, sign a minor league deal with another needy organization, maybe reinvent himself as a reliever. But even in the state that the Marlins are in with their bullpen and all the question marks, he is thoroughly expendable, not someone that Fans view very fondly. He's not going to sell you any extra merchandise, at least not in the U.S. So it's yeah, just an arrangement that was pretty ugly from the beginning on the baseball playing side. Nothing against him personally whatsoever. I'm including him in this segment just because he's under contract, and I'm not fully confident in the Marlins being able to walk away from the money owed to him and just accept it as a sunk cost. Uh, assuming hopefully they do 
assuming they might not, um, including him in this segment, someone that would fit in to the mop-up role in the Marlins bullpen if he is, in fact, retained heading into the regular season. Adam Connolly, very similar stats to Chen, eerily similar. A 6.53 earned run average this past season, 5.19 fielder independent pitching in 60 and two-thirds innings pitched. One of the disappointments on this major league roster this past year, despite the low expectations for the roster overall, there were certain individuals that we hoped would sustain their level of performance or take a small step forward, and Conley took a big step back. It's hard to find a silver lining other than the fact that he's still throwing hard, averaged about 96 miles per hour on his fastball, very similar to 2018 when he had some bright spots. But the big difference this year, and we had a longer analysis on the website pointing this out, is the deterioration of his changeup. For whatever reason, he was not fooling hitters the same way this season as he did the previous year in his first opportunity as a consistent reliever. Uh, The key to that pitch, of course, is making it unpredictable in regards to the fastball, uh, imitating your delivery and the movement, well, not the movement, the delivery of those pitches such that the hitter can't tell the difference until it's too late. But Conley's changeup was simply not as good this year, didn't move the same way, and it was hit a lot harder. All of his pitches were hit pretty hard, despite the velocity that he had. It's very hard to find any bright spots in his performance, just consistently bad this year. Started him in high leverage situations, and from there he lost Don Mattingly's trust. Arbitration eligible heading into 2020. No sure thing that the Marlins are going to tender him a contract because he's going to be in line for well over a million dollars. And if they were to, let's say, non-tender him and re-sign him, they could probably get him at a lower guaranteed money. That's the nature of the business. He's worth a flyer, unlike Chen, because of the raw stuff, because how recently, in early 2018, he looked to be a competent reliever. So worth a flyer, even if they non-tender him as someone they might want to re-sign. For the time being, though, again, he's under control for this coming year via arbitration, heading into his age 30 season. Harlan Garcia, the best reliever on the Marlins in 2019, he posted a 3.02 ERA, 3.77 FIP in 50 and two-thirds innings pitched. It may seem like an eternity ago, but he actually was not on the opening day roster for the Marlins. He still had a minor league option, and they used it, coming off a very shaky 2018 that had me concerned especially of how hard he was hit for the majority of the season, how uncomfortable he looked in a relief role after they gave him that opportunity to start early on. This time in 2019, they fully reverted him back to relief work at times, stretching him for multiple innings, but for the most part, just, you know, three outs, four outs, pretty conventional type of stuff. He had a very long scoreless streak right in the middle of the year. That was a lot of fun to follow. Never going to be someone with a super high swing and miss rate or a strikeout rate overall. That that includes this year as well, but he did make a lot of positive strides in that area. That was the biggest weakness last year, is that he simply could not get the ball by. Hitters couldn't finish him off, and eventually they got a pitch to hit. This year he was more efficient with his pitches, took a big improvement with his changeup, where Connolly moved backwards. Harlan was just the opposite. It was one of the better changeups in all of baseball, this year. That's a pitch that the Marlins emphasize in teaching their young pitchers, and Harlan has really taken to that well. So the peripherals pretty closely back up the ERA, although not perfectly. He had some success against both righties and lefties, uh, and that's a trend that you'll be noticing is that 
not all that significant platoon splits for most of these left-handers. Um, the reality is that the rules are changing in baseball, beginning at the major league level in 2020, where relievers, all pitchers, are expected to face at least three batters or finish an inning. The days of a loogie, a lefty one-out guy, those are going to disappear, and so you'll need lefties that can get out all types of opponents. Harlan looks to be that type of guy. He's still affordable for another few years, controllable via arbitration in 2021 and beyond. Uh, A nice bounce back from him. Uh, Very reassuring that there's at least one lefty in this bullpen that the Marlins can trust heading into the new year. Brian Moran brings a big contrast in styles. He put up a 4.26 ERA, 4.00 FIP in six and a third innings pitch as a September call-up. Very low arm angle, even lower than Conley, almost sidearm. It doesn't rely on velocity whatsoever. I'm not sure he threw a single pitch over 90 miles per hour with the Marlins, and that slow slider gets into the low 70s. So the speed differential is there as long as he's able to repeat his mechanics. Throughout most of the year, he was with AAA New Orleans and did a good job there. When you consider it was an offensive-friendly environment, Run scoring spiked all across the Pacific Coast League with the new baseball that they were using. And so for him to have an ERA in the threes at that level is practically being dominant. He he pitched in a lot of high leverage situations down there. Uh, not quite as money uh, up in the big leagues. His signature moment, obviously his major league debut, coming against his brother, his younger brother, Colin Moran, and he struck him out on a full count. So that's one of the top moments of the entire Marlins season, I think because of all the work that Brian Moran put to get to that point, 31 years old, and he had bounced around a bunch of different organizations before finally getting a call-up with the Marlins. If they keep him on the 40-man roster, he's controllable for plenty of years to come, just as any rookie player would be. Uh, The track record at the major league level is obviously very limited. The fact that he is a different look from the conventional reliever is something the Marlins should put a value on. I imagine... He's going to stick with them throughout the offseason and get an invite to spring training in order to try to better establish himself as a legitimate weapon with that unique arm angle and the stuff that he has. Just a good feel-good story that the Marlins have had. Um, Recent history has had not great results from these feel-good stories over an expanded sample size. Hopefully, Moran will be an exception to that. From Venezuela, Jose Quijada, who was a rookie this past year for the Marlins, put up a 5.76 ERA, a 7.66 fielder independent pitching in 29 and two-thirds innings. Called up, sent down, called up, sent down uh, several times during the season. Overall, just, uh, he was bad. And the issue was simply throwing strikes with his fastball, fastball command, missing constantly up in the zone almost a a batter per inning this year was either walked or hit by pitch from Quijada it's one thing if your whip total base runners allowed is one per inning but to essentially give away base runners one per inning throughout what was a partial season in the big leagues is really concerning he had taken a big step forward in 2018 across a few different levels and that gave reason for optimism Uh, but in 2019 even at AAA struggling with his command as well. A young guy, um, and the velocity is pretty above average, especially for a left-hander. If you hit 95 from the left side, 
That's not something you see very often. Um, the Marlins can be somewhat patient with him. He does have another minor league option to go. They can try to DFA him or place him on, get him through waivers and outright him off the 40-man roster. I think based on what he's shown this year, there's not going to be a whole lot of interest in him. But if they don't want to take the risk, I can also understand keeping him on the 40-man. And maybe he showed up in spring training and he's made some mechanical adjustments. You like the arm, and uh, he is a fun spectacle to watch. He's really animated on the mound. The results, though, were simply unacceptable from Quijada this year. And now the complicated case of Caleb Smith, a 4.52 ERA, 5.11 FIP, and 153 and a third innings pitched at the major league level. That there was also a couple rehab starts with Double A Jacksonville, which pushes the innings over 160, which was the highest total that he's ever had as a professional pitcher, which is saying something for a guy that's now 28. He's been in pro ball for a while, and this was his heaviest workload. He was coming off of surgery on his left lat. He suffered that injury in the middle of 2018, just as things were going really well for him. It was a big step back. It was a pretty severe tear that required that surgery, and yet when he showed up this year at the beginning, his velocity was up based on what it had previously been. All his pitches were working well together, fastball, slider, and the changeup. That's why for the month of April, it was uh, sensational. It was one of the better single months from any starting pitcher in Marlins history. That's not an exaggeration. He was striking out at one point over one-third of every batter faced, which is right on par with the very best pitchers in the major leagues. Wasn't able to keep that up, though. He had a case of hip inflammation in late May, early June. That put him on the injured list. They were slow in bringing him back. When he did come back, the velocity wasn't quite the same. Uh, but more importantly, the one trend that bothered me, and, I, and I'm sure he had a decent reason for it. It wasn't a, like purely coincidence, is that he shied away from using his changeup. To be a starting pitcher with only three pitches is somewhat unusual in the majors these days. And if you're going to seldom use one of those pitches and not going to use it at any meaningful counts the way that Caleb did in much of August and in September, then you're really putting yourself in a tough position. So I'm not entirely sure why he did that. Uh, the results were lousy for that stretch of time. He served up home runs at an even higher rate. That was a concern with him regardless is that he's a very fly ball heavy pitcher and more of those fly balls went over the fence late in the season as he was relying basically on two pitches. This season was never going to be all that much about the results for Caleb, even as his name popped up as a trade candidate in front of the deadline. That was never going to be a likely scenario. The bigger test will be how he does in 2020 when he's presumably healthy. He's coming off this year where he pushed his limits, one of the higher strikeout totals by any left-hander in Marlins history for a single season. Uh, right behind Al Leiter, and there's maybe one more right up there with Dontrell Willis in the best years that he had in terms of punching guys out. There's interesting potential here with Caleb. Uh, on the older side, compared to other inexperienced pitchers, but also very inexpensive for the Marlins, especially coming into the year, there's no doubt that he's going to be in the rotation, given an opportunity to show that he can sustain what he did early in 2019, because that was one of the more exciting developments of anybody on the roster. 
This category of 2020 ETAs, guys with a 2020 estimated time of arrival to get a call up for the first time this coming season, is going to be a very quick one. Most of the lefties that the Marlins will be leaning on and building around are further away than this coming season, or they're already on the major league roster, or they're not even in the organization at all right now. So we're just going to look at two relievers here who I expect to see up at some point this coming season. Dylan Lee put up a 2.91 ERA, 4.24 fielder independent pitching in 58 and two-thirds innings pitched with AA Jacksonville and AAA New Orleans. He's been in the organization for a while now, drafted way back in 2016. Uh, So that's the old regime that picked him out of Fresno. And he was originally uh, thought of as a starting pitching prospect. The stuff didn't play up quite as they hoped. And the first experimentation with that was in 2018 as a reliever. And it was a smashing success with Jupiter and with Jacksonville. He had stretches of excellence, a long scoreless streak right in the middle of the year. He was closing games for Jacksonville, a lefty that has pretty good velocity for a left-hander, low 90s to 94, 95 on the good days. Simplifying it with with two pitches, really, after his changeup didn't quite develop the way that they had hoped for. And the results are there uh, across several different levels. And, of course, this year getting a higher challenge, cracking through to AAA, and the disparity between his ERA and then his peripherals, some of that has to do with more balls going out of the yard at AAA once he got called up there. He's going to be 26 next year. He needs to be... Protect, he doesn't need to be protected on the 40-man roster, but he will be eligible for the Rule 5 draft. So I am curious as to whether he definitely makes it through. I expect him to, though, as someone that doesn't have exceptional tools and like any special particular pedigree. Uh, the Marlins are going to take their chances, and he's probably going to stick around, but definitely get an invite to spring training. And depending on the other offseason moves, he's someone that could sneak onto that opening day roster and come out of camp as a trusted lefty because we ran through the options that are already at the major league level. And those guys, they have big question marks with their stuff or their consistency. And Dylan Lee could be a big beneficiary of that. And another reliever, Alex Vessia, 1.75 ERA, 1.99 FIP. And that's in 66 and two thirds innings pitched across one, two, three different levels. He started in low A Clinton just drafted in 2018, within barely one calendar year of being in pro ball, he was already at double A, pitching in important games. Just sensational. Striking out 100 batters as a strictly as a reliever in the minor leagues in that shortened season is extraordinary, and they didn't want to end his season there. Vesia is still pitching as we speak in the Arizona Fall League, and he has not allowed a run. We're now the Arizona Fall League is ending next week. I'm going to be recapping that somewhat here on the pod and on the website. And Vesia is one of the bright spots because he was a fall star selection as one of the great players before their midway point, And he has continued to pitch well since the fall stars game. Again, the velocity is, is solid, but nothing exceptional. Uh, I believe here in the Fall League, he has topped out around 95 and mostly been sitting in the low 90s with the heater, the the key for him is that spin rate on that pitch and his willingness to throw it up in the zone. 
you've seen this with other examples. Uh, Josh Hader is the peak of it, where if you have a high spin rate and you throw your fastball up in the zone, uh, batters have a hard time even just getting their bat to that ball because of the way it moves and their perception of where the pitch is going to go and how, how often they wind up being wrong. So Vestia has that unusual fastball shape to it and movement that is able to get a lot of swings and misses. Aside from the ERA, you see how the peripherals totally back that up. He kept the ball in the ballpark. He did not allow free passes. He was one of the bottom line best relievers in all of minor league baseball. That's why he's nominated for one of the Milby Awards for best reliever that you can vote on on the minor league baseball website, and I encourage you to do that. He's close. Even as a guy that was just drafted in the very late rounds of 2018, I expect to see him before the end of the year. The reason being that he's just been so consistently good at all these levels of competition, and we know how needy the Marlins are for relievers that can get outs consistently. He is someone that looks like a key contributor for the Marlins in the long term, and a great pickup to get him as late as they did in the draft. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The next waves of Marlins left-handers, looking at basically 2021 and beyond, begins with Julio Frias, a 2.83 ERA, 2.66 fielder independent pitching in his 70 innings with the short season A Batavia Muckdogs. And what sticks out uh, even prior to this year is how good he was at keeping the ball in the ballpark. Even in 2019, 70 innings all in Batavia and allowed just one home run in all that time. Even with the reputation that that league has, the New York Penn League, for uh, you know suppressing offense, that's incredible. And a guy that, despite now being in the organization for now parts of five seasons, this was just his age 21 season a lot of room still ahead of him to go he was one of seven marlins prospects in that league that were picked as new york Penn league all-stars that was a great team that they put together and he was uh, probably the most valuable pitcher that they had as a guy that was giving them all those innings and was consistently very good it was consistent that's probably the number one word that sticks out with free us this was his first taste of pitching above the rookie levels Previously, just the Dominican Summer League and the Gulf Coast League. I don't have all the specifics on his stuff, just that this was uh, a success for him to go against competition that was about his age and in some cases older than he was. And he acquainted himself very well, someone that given the workload he put in, you'd expect to see spend most of next year in low A Clinton and get stretched out over full season ball. So that's when we'll have a better idea of what exactly his ceiling looks like. A prospect of a similar age that we already know very, very well is Braxton Garrett. 3.54 ERA, 3.79 FIP in 106 and two-thirds innings pitched. The vast majority of that with high-A Jupiter. 
finished up with Double A Jacksonville at the end of the year, and that bloated the ERA a little bit. The main takeaway is that this was a smashing success for someone in his first season coming off of Tommy John surgery. Sat out all of 2018, so got even more rest than usual for a Tommy John survivor. More than a year and a half in between playing formal games during the regular season, his stuff fully returned to its pre-surgery level. Uh, fastball velocity getting up into the mid-90s in that plus-plus swing-and-miss curveball that has such a big drop to it and that he's able to throw for a strike when he needs to as well. Those two weapons alone make him a very exciting pitching prospect no matter what his future role is. If you look at his frame and you look at the control that he's able to have with these pitches, he's it, it gives you a lot of reassurance that he's going to be a rotation piece long-term. So he could build up the innings from here. This was a good start. Yeah. If he expands even more than that, then by the time we get to 2021, he could already be a, a full-fledged major league starting pitcher. The ceiling that he has, Braxton Garrett, is maybe the highest out of any left-hander that we've discussed or will discuss in the entire Marlins farm system. He could be an all-star caliber starting pitcher in the major leagues if all goes right and he stays durable from this point forward. Yeah, the Tommy John is... He always gives you a scare, but more and more we see these guys come back and be exactly who we thought they would be. Uh, the cherry on top of his year was being a ping pong tournament champion for the Marlins in spring training when they had a big tournament involving just about everyone who wanted to participate. He is a very talented athlete that has a lot going for him. The good question is going to be the durability, and we'll see exactly what his results look like as he spends more time in double A in 2020. Uh, I don't think they're going to rush him up, especially considering what his ultimate potential is. There's no hurry to put him on the 40-man roster this coming year. That decision will be another year away. It wouldn't be it wouldn't be impossible for him to debut in 2020, but I think the Marlins are going to play it safe. They have something special on their hands. Next up, Luis Palacios. 1.12 ERA. Yeah, let me say that again. 1.12 earned run average for the season. A 2.22 fielder independent pitching in 40 and a third innings pitched. Wow. All that work was with the Gulf Coast League Marlins. It was his first taste of pitching in the U.S. after he had put himself on the map the previous year by dominating the Dominican Summer League. Very similar numbers with the DSL, which even though we didn't have the video on him or much of the details, the fact that he was performing at that level as a teenager really put him on the radar and he fully backed that up in the GCL. I wanted to see him very desperately at a higher level of competition at the end of the year, just to, just out of curiosity, understanding that they're bringing him along slowly and he's still so young, just turned 19 in July. He was someone that was signed with the hope of projectability and that he could add stuff as it went along. He, as a 16-year-old, when he did sign, the velocity was in the mid-80s, and at this point, maybe in the upper 80s, but not much beyond that in games, and he's subsisting so far on a fastball and changeup, on sealing the batters between those two pitches. He also has a very big looping curveball, though nothing that really shines a light to what Braxton Garrett does. It's more of a show-me pitch, something to keep you off balance. I did see him get some strikeouts with that uh, over the past two years. Still something that needs to be sharpened up in order to be a true 
outgetter and put away pitch for him. Right now, it's all about the command. His strikeout to walk ratio is off the charts. That was both last year, and then he backed it up this year with long stretches spanning weeks between issuing a single walk. I understand the skepticism for the time being. I don't think anybody really has him rated as a top 30 Marlins prospect. Uh, next time that we re-rank the Marlins prospects on fish stripes, he'll get some serious consideration, but the limitations in the raw stuff uh, must be noted. It's why we can't always just power rank these guys based on their performance in the minor leagues. It's not always that simple. Not every skill translates the same way as you move up the chain. Uh, nonetheless, his performance could not have been any better this year. 2017 Marlins first round draft pick Trevor Rogers had a heck of a season. 2.90 ERA, 2.94 fielder independent pitching in 136 and a third innings pitched. It was one of the heavier workloads that any Marlins prospect had this season. And as a result, he led all Marlins minor leaguers in strikeouts this year. Most of that work was with the high A Jupiter hammerheads where he was a Florida State League All-Star, one of the better pitchers in the entire league, and then he got that late-season promotion to Jacksonville after I publicly campaigned for him to get a promotion. Once he did, the performance held steady. He did very well facing much older competition at AA when he was just 21 years old. This was his first full pro regular season, where he pitched all the way from April through early September. So he really built up to innings that he hadn't previously endured, and sets him up really well to take off next year. And so I can understand why there's some like expectation that he could be called up by the end of 2020 just because he's going to be all stretched out. He has a very long frame, listed at six foot six, the tallest pitcher that we've mentioned in this entire episode. He hasn't fully filled out that frame, and I'm not sure he's going to need to because the velocity is already above average and the command of his fastball is key. That that allows him to pile up those strikeouts is that he's putting the fastball exactly where he wants to and not necessarily where the hitter wants to. Getting ahead in counts, it gives him the freedom to throw those secondary pitches, even if none of them really stick out between the slider and the changeup and the curveball as a being a plus pitch. The counts that he's able to get for himself because of throwing strikes early on, it opens up such a big world of possibilities for him. At the very least, you like his chances of being a future middle-of-the-rotation starting pitcher. We're going to learn a whole lot based on what he does in AA once we get a larger sample size of it. And now, friend of the podcast, Will Stewart. A 5.43 ERA, which is quite a bit higher than you'd like to see. A 4.43 FIP in 129 in the third innings pitched. He had a big regression from what the Marlins thought they were getting. Remember, he was part of the JT Real Muto trade package, a clear third piece behind Sixto Sanchez and Jorge Alfaro in that deal. He was coming off a very good 2018 season at the low A level, and it didn't work quite as well for him when he moved up to Jupiter this year. Just someone that allowed a lot of hard contact and also was plagued by some bad luck. The fielding at Jupiter was poor this year, although it wasn't a big excuse for Trevor Rogers or Braxton Garrett, both of them, spent most of the year at the Jupiter level and had success. Stewart, unlike them, doesn't quite have the same fastball velocity, uh, below average stuff in terms of you know the raw movement on it, and that forces him to be more precise with his location, 
and more creative with how he sequences his pitches. His changeup is a big, big asset for him. And when he was at his best this year, that changeup was key. He had a couple outings where he nearly threw no hitters, one of them very early in the year, the other one in the second half of the season. In between, there were a lot of rough times where he allowed crooked numbers early in the game. First time through the order, that made you scratch your head as to why that was happening and what was off with him. Yeah, his margin of error is thinner than most of these prospects because of the lack of velocity and some questions about the quality of his breaking balls. And the one particular trend that sticks out is how high his ground ball rate was when he was successful with the Phillies. 64% ground ball rate between 2017 and 2018, one of the very highest in all of minor league baseball at any level. And that came down a lot in 2019 where it was in the low 50s, allowing more balls that are line drives are in the air. And when you do that and they find grass or they go over the wall, it creates a lot more damage. So it's pretty simple. Uh, what's not quite as simple is understanding what the differences were for him, whether his approach changed at all, or it was simply a matter of higher quality hitters that were able to square up his stuff. He will be eligible for the Rule 5 draft this coming year and is not currently on the 40-man roster, so that'll be an interesting decision for the Marlins to make. He's only 22 years old, and when you're facing older competition and on his best days being successful, knowing that he can throw strikes with decent consistency, I would imagine that the Marlins protect him for the time being. Focus on the fact that Will Stewart's fielder independent numbers were adequate. Noted that it's a pitcher-friendly league that he spent the time competing in. There's still a lot of hope for him to ride in the ship moving forward. And here are my miscellaneous left-handers in the Marlins organization. Beginning with Daniel Castano, he put up a 3.48 ERA, 2.67 fielder independent pitching. That's excellent. In 119 total innings, he was a throw-in in the Ozuna trade. The fourth piece included in that who was recently out of college and was putting up some nice numbers in the very low levels of the minors. He, he's always been a guy that can attack the strike zone, and that was about it. There were questions about the stuff. Velocity is below average, and all of his secondary pitches were a big question mark coming into the year. He had had some issues keeping balls in the ballpark, which is a big red flag when you're pitching against similar age competitions and you're getting barreled by them. It's It raises questions about whether your stuff is, is good enough to compete. Even earlier this year, he had some rough patches while he was with Jupiter, and he straightened it out. <laughs> it's a little unclear what switch really flipped for him. He got a promotion to double-A Jacksonville when they needed an extra arm in the bullpen, and then as the season wore on, there was an opening in the rotation, and he squeezed into the rotation. He had already been stretched out in previous years to be a starter. The question was whether he was capable of getting multiple times through a lineup and still being successful with that high 80s fastball in the questionable secondaries, and he answered it with a pretty emphatic yes. He was one of their hottest pitchers during the middle of the season, had an insane streak uh, where he piled up a almost perfect strikeout-to-walk ratio over a series of a handful of starts in Jacksonville. One of the single best games I witnessed all year from Marlins Prospect was his complete game victory for Jacksonville in the middle of the year, where he racked up 13 strikeouts, which was easily a career high, and that's a career high for even some great 
top-of-the-line pitching prospects. He had uh, an excellent changeup, it seemed, working in that game. Uh, and that was something that people didn't believe that he had entering the year. Eligible for the Rule 5 draft coming up and not on the 40-man roster. That's something we've mentioned a few times. Who Guys that will be susceptible to being claimed by other teams. This is a kind of first-world problem that you have once your farm system reaches an elite status. It's being able to hold on to all the guys that you want to. And that's why he's in my curiosities, because not a conventional big-time prospect, and still a question mark as to what his stuff will look like in the major leagues and how successful he'll be there. But the step forward that he took this season uh, makes you wonder. So he's one of the more mature pitchers that they have who will be vulnerable to the Rule 5, and I think it could go either way with whether or not he gets drafted or not, depending on what a team that's drafting in that position needs from the Marlins. But he's someone that the Marlins would be pretty happy if he's able to sneak through the Rule 5. Sean Gunther put up a 2.02 ERA, 3.01 FIP in his 71 in a third innings pitched with Clinton and with Jupiter. He has an amazing ability to pound the strike zone and make the batters do something with it. He was on a pretty historic pace earlier this year until hitting a bit of a rough spot as things went on in terms of not issuing walks to anybody under any circumstances, no matter what. He was had repeated appearances stretching multiple innings out of the bullpen. A lot of versatility there with how long his outings will go. And I think he even had a few where he went multiple times through the order coming out of the bullpen. So some versatility there with his role. Uh, the raw stuff, once again, like Castano, is not going to blow you away, but the fundamental ability to throw pitches where you want them and get yourself in favorable counts, that goes a long way. And thirdly, Mackenzie Mills a 5.36 ERA, 4.99 FIP in 84 innings. He had been long regarded as a hopeful starting pitching prospect, once with the Nationals organization, then with the Phillies organization, traded to the Marlins in the Justin Bohr trade. So it raised a few eyebrows last offseason when the Marlins got him. Very quick look at him at AA, and then they left him unprotected for the Rule 5, even though he was eligible last year. He did not get picked up, and the Marlins had another year to figure out exactly what he is, and they didn't get any definitive answers this year. He is a relatively tall pitcher, very long legs, and it reminds me a little bit, just a little bit, of Dontrell Willis with the frame that he has. Just not nowhere near the kind of effectiveness that D-Train did, and I'm not entirely sure where they go from here. He was a starting pitcher entering the season, had his struggles, got moved to the bullpen. It was really because of his struggles that Castano got his opportunity to establish himself with Jacksonville. Uh, Mills moved to the bullpen where his velocity did play up a little bit, and he was able to simplify his approach to just fastball, breaking ball, had some nice stretches in there of success, also had some really ugly outings where he couldn't put the ball where he wanted to, and just couldn't throw strikes. So in some ways, uh, the opposite of Castano in that they're in a similar position coming up on this offseason, but in terms of performance, Mills underwhelmed this year. And I don't think the Marlins are going to be especially tied to him just because he was a return for Justin Bohr. Um, I don't think that will play into 
their decision making as they figure out who their most talented pitchers are moving forward. I, I still like his unique build and his delivery. I can see where that could be successful if he actually knows where his pitches are going and if the velocity continues to play up now that he's being in a more limited role. So these are questions to answer uh, coming into 2020, and the Marlins have a lot of opportunities on their pitching staff, especially when it comes to potential relievers that I think Mills could take advantage of. So despite the numbers, not somebody that I'm interested in giving up on yet, and the Marlins will figure out more about him as he gets opportunities in 2020. Marlins fans, thank you for joining me, Eli Sussman, for another edition of Ultimate Marlins Depth Charts as we went through all the left-handed pitching options in the present, the near-term future, the long-term future. Uh, Hopefully you learned some new names in the process, at the very least some new attributes about these arms coming up through the Marlins organization. Uh, Personally, I think it is important for the Marlins to go after some left-handed pitching this offseason Uh, preferably in free agency, take a gamble on some guys on one-year deals, whether it's a veteran lefty to eat up some innings. I know Gio Gonzalez is a very popular selection because of his Hialeah roots. Uh, Even in the bullpen, some lefties that have swing and miss ability because that's something certainly lacking from the names that they currently have slated for those roles. Uh, You're relying on some good health and some good bounce backs for this pitching staff just to be an adequate in terms of getting opposing lefties out. And there's no reason to hope when you have so much payroll flexibility, the Marlins should be using it as they improve the major league product in 2020 and beyond. Uh, 